In 2 Kings chapter 6, the Bible tells us a fascinating story about the prophet Elijah and his young servant named Gehazi. Gehazi woke up early and went outside, and all of a sudden we can hear Gehazi's panicked voice. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And in my mind's eye, maybe you as well can picture the older Elisha barging out of the house and saying to his servant, what's wrong? Gehazi's pointing to the horizon. And there surrounding the city is the army of the enemy with horses and chariots, the tanks of the day. But Elisha says reassuringly, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those that are with them. What? <laughs> what? What are you talking about, Elisha? And then Elisha prays this prayer. He says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he said, Elisha, clearly the army of the Lord's angels. So what made the difference? What made the difference between the fear of Gehazi and the courage of Elisha? The difference had to do with what they saw, with what they knew to be true. All Gehazi could see was what was right in front of him. But for Elisha, he saw higher. He saw farther. And that gave him a courage. Join me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue our study as a church through this part of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And friends, I already told Pastor Mark this, but as I was preparing this sermon on 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, it struck me how complex this passage is. I mean, I'm an outliner. I've been teaching God's Word for a long time, and I like to put things in order, put things in an outline. And I read this passage, and I thought, boy, what, what am I going to do? And so I've been asking for God's help. Would you like to join me as we just briefly pray again? Lord, we're your people, and this is your word. So we ask specifically, Lord, for your spirit to come here at CCC this morning and help us to understand this passage and help us to see how you want it to change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you found 2 Corinthians 5? What's the very first word? I checked, and almost every English translation starts the same way. What's the first word in chapter 5? It's the word for. Clearly what's going on here is Paul's continuing his teaching that he's been talking about in the previous passages. So what I'd like to do this morning, just to get a running start to chapter 5, is to back up at least one paragraph. I appreciate so much Pastor Mark's ministry last Sunday as he explained this passage. Let's just back up and 
Start at verse 16 of chapter 4 to get that running start into chapter 5. So join me, please. I'll read aloud, starting at 4.16 and continuing through 1.10. The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not only to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the big picture, the big picture, backing up even to the previous passage, is this, that Paul the Apostle, Paul, the missionary, Paul, the Christian, is going to explain why he just doesn't give up in the face of suffering, why he doesn't just abandon Christ, why he doesn't just walk away from this mission he's been given to tell other people about Christ, when doing so brings so many hardships. Living for Jesus Christ, telling other people about Jesus Christ, brought suffering into Paul's life. Not just for a week or a month or a year, but for decades. What kept him going? What kept the Apostle Paul going for years? In the face of suffering, in the face of hardship for the cause of Christ. Why didn't he just chuck it? Why didn't he just walk away? Why didn't he, as he says, lose heart? Where did he get the courage to live the Christian life? I'll tell you what we're going to do. To get a grip on these ten verses, we're going to think of the Christian life in three stages, or if you prefer it, three scenes. There's life physically, in this fallen world in which we now live. That's the first scene, the first stage. Living physically, bodily, in this fallen world. Then there will be a second scene, a second stage, if you will, and that is living without bodies in heaven. But there's a third scene, a third stage in our lives, 
and that is living with resurrected bodies, physical bodies, on the new heaven and new earth. So let's begin in this first scene, this first stage, living in our mortal bodies. Now let me say it, I'm going to say this several times because I think it needs emphasized in our current culture. Having physical bodies is good. It's a good thing. The sovereign creator made us with bodies. Even you children that are in the room, remember Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, how God made Adam and Eve. And he made them with physical bodies. And when you get to the end of day six, after God had made these image bearers, the man and the woman, he ends that by saying, this is good. Now you might be thinking, well, that was then and this is now, you know, that was Adam and Eve. Well, even post-fall, we read the psalmist's song in Psalm 139 when he said this. I know this is a favorite passage to some of you. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And here the psalmist writes this song that he teaches the people of Israel to sing. And he says, God, you made me. You made my body. You made me physically. And he says... I praise you. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So one key dynamic that we need to understand this morning is that God made us human beings with bodies. And God said, that is good. That is very good. But, but our physical bodies have been so negatively impacted by mankind's fall into sin and that's a hard thing. Adam and Eve chose to disbelieve their creator God. They chose to disobey creator God. And their sin impacted all of creation. All of creation was impacted by the image bearer's choice to walk away from God. Not just all creation in some sort of generic form, but us personally. We human beings, their descendants, have been impacted negatively. Even physically, we've been impacted because of Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God. Paul said it this way, concisely, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he said, sin came into the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We see that, don't we? We feel that, don't we? That even though God made our bodies, physically, physical bodies, and that's a very good thing, we see the effects of the fall. And I know a number of families in this church right now are struggling with themselves or with a family member who has been affected by the fall. And as I preached this morning, my one son-in-law who's also a pastor in Michigan is in the hospital with COVID. 
and I think he's a generation younger than I, but his body is being so impacted by the fallenness of the world that we're living in now, and it impacts us, it impacts our families. We, we look around and we see distortions of God's design. We see disease, we see disabilities, we see decay, and yes, we see death. The Apostle Paul was very realistic about the fallenness of our bodies. Do you remember the analogy in chapter 4, verse 7 that Pastor Mark preached last week? What analogy did Paul use for the frailty of these physical bodies? He called our current bodies jars of clay. Jars of clay. Fragile, temporary jars of clay. He's going to continue that theme into chapter 5, but now with a different analogy. Same theme, different analogy. Instead of referring to our bodies as jars of clay in chapter 5, he refers to our bodies as tents. He doesn't call our physical bodies fortresses. He doesn't even call them buildings. He calls them tents. That tells us something, doesn't it? It challenges us to reassess our naivety about life and can I say this respectfully as one of the older members of our church? I think this is especially something younger people need to think about. Because when we're young, we feel healthy, we feel strong, and even death seems like some possible future event, and the reality of that doesn't grab us. But the Bible is clear. These physical bodies that God made very good have nevertheless been impacted by sin and the fall to the point that they are tents that will be destroyed. Just like you take down a tent. These bodies will be taken down. They'll be destroyed one day. We will die. I was remembering as I prepared the sermon about our first old person in our church. And I realize that scattered among us here today are a few longtime veterans of CCC. When our church was in its early days, we were all young. And, th and then the Lord sent us, as an answer to our prayer, one old lady. She was the widowed mother of one of our elders. And she moved here to be closer to her family. And she alone was a grandparent in our church. And Nadine Jump, I'll use her name, she, she was dearly loved by all of us, and she tended to be rather blunt in her words sometimes. <laughs> the, the kids always called her Grandma Jump. And she looked at me one time when I was probably in my early 30s, and she said in her very Nadine-ish way, Larry, one of these days, you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to say, how did I get in this old body? <laughs> Nadine, you were right. <laughs> I tell our grandchildren when they look at their great-grandmother, who was quite frail at 90, I can see them looking at her with some confusion, some wonderment in her bent-over frailness. And I say to them privately, quietly, Kids, I just want you to remember something. Every old person used to be a young person. Great-grandma wasn't always that way. T. 
teaching them that if they live long enough in the Lord's providence, they too will be an old person. These tents that we live in are frail. They're temporary, aren't they? And so Paul is very candid in this passage. He's very candid. And he says says that in verse 2. He says in verse 4, while we are still in this tent, we groan. He doesn't say there might be an occasion when you groan. He says, while we are in this tent, we groan. Life in this fallen world, in this era between the gardens, this physical life we live now is full of opportunities to groan. And I'm reminded that even the sinless Savior, Jesus, when He stood outside the tomb of His friend, His friend Lazarus, That he groaned. It's not the same word in Greek, but you know what? It's a similar sentiment. As Jesus stood there in front of the tomb of his friend, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, it says in the ESV, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved. That even Jesus was grieved over the effects of the fall. Because look what it did to my friend. He grieved, he groaned at the tomb of his friend. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Here we are living in these bodies that God designed to be good and yet they've been so infected, so affected by sin in the fall that we're frail and we get sick, we have disabilities, we get arthritis and one day we die. Is the answer to somehow escape? Escape from this physical world? Friends, I believe that many Christians in our culture and even churches in our culture have a very deficient view, a very deficient theology of the body. And I've heard at funerals and in other places, escape language. Finally escape from this body, finally free from this body, as if somehow bodies are bad, physical things are bad, and spiritual things are good. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them not just a soulish part, an immaterial part, he gave them bodies. And he said, this is really good. So even though we're living in the fallen era, this era between the gardens, in our tents, with our frailty and our temporalness, the answer isn't somehow to escape physicality. We, we do groan, but our bodies are a good thing. I, I want, to read, want to read with you a portion of Romans chapter 8. You can keep your place in 2 Corinthians 5, but listen as I read Romans chapter 8. Let me just read verses 18 through 23. Very similarly, Paul writes to the Roman believers. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The answer to our groaning is not freedom from our bodies. Oh, it would be wonderful if we just didn't have physicality anymore, if we didn't have material things anymore. That's not the answer. Paul says, we groan. But it's kind of like a woman who's in labor. And and she might be groaning, but she's groaning with the sure hope that something good is about to happen. Our baby's about to be born. And Paul says it's kind of like that. That as we're in this tent existence, as we live with the fallenness around us, it's impacted us, yes, even physically. We groan, but we groan knowing, having this sure hope. We know that. There's a birth coming, as it were, and and that's our new bodies. And so the answer to the groaning is not somehow to escape physicality in some sort of permanent fashion. God designed us to be physical, to be bodily. The effects of the fall impact us physically, bodily these jars of clay, these fragile tents that we live in. But Jesus is coming back. And there's new bodies promised us. But we have to at least briefly deal with the question, but what happens? What happens if I die before Jesus comes back? By the way, that's going to be what's true for the great majority of Christians over the millennia is what happens if I die before Jesus comes back? Paul alludes to that in this passage. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about being naked. Verses 6 or 8, let me read 6 or 8 again. He says, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Do you hear the tension there? The Apostle Paul says, it would be wonderful to be face to face with Jesus. That would just be wonderful. And it is, isn't it? And every fellow believer says, amen. Oh, to see his face. Paul says, I I long for that. And he says, that would be a good thing. It would be a good thing to see Jesus face to face. He says that to the Philippians too. When he wrote the book of Philippians, he says, my desire is to depart and, and be with Christ, for that is far better. And then a very famous saying from the lips of the Apostle Paul, or from his pen, I should say, is in that same letter, he says, To live is Christ, and to that being in our bodies is a good thing, but now here Paul's saying it'd be better to be with Jesus. Yes, but even when we're with Jesus in bodiless form, even when we're with Jesus in spirit form alone, there is still a holy, 
uneasiness in the back of our souls. Paul ponders that in this passage. What will life be like in a disembodied spirit form? And so we go to heaven. The moment we die, the moment we die, our immaterial part, our spirit, our soul, goes to be with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our bodies are still here on the earth, right? And so we go out to the cemeteries and we bury the body. In fact, when I lead a graveside service, I often say, we're here to plant the body of brother so-and-so. We're here to plant the body of sister so-and-so. I'm planting it as a seed. We're planting it as a seed because it's going to rise again. But until Jesus comes back, there's a separation between the body and the soul. And Paul alludes to that here in this passage. When he talks about it, he calls it, what? He calls it being found naked. Now that might sound humorous to the kids, but what's he mean by that? He says, it's, it's, it's kind of like I don't have clothes on. I'm in the spirit form, but I, I, I want clothes on. I, I want a body on. And, and so even though I'm really glad to be with Jesus face to face, there's still this, this holy discontent, this, this holy hesitation that this isn't the final word, is it? I mean, because I, I, really, I would really like to be clothed with a body again. So there is another stage awaiting us. There's another scene, isn't there? There's a third scene, a third stage. So let's say it this way. Having a body, even in this fallen world, having a body is good. Being with Jesus without a body would be even better. It would be even better not because we're without the body. It would be better because we're with Jesus. (laughs) So being with Jesus would be even better. But, Your best life is yet to come. Your best life is not now. Your best life is yet to come. And what is that? It's when Jesus comes back, when heaven and earth merge, as it were, and we get at the hand of our Lord sinless, perfect, resurrected bodies. Did you notice in verses 1 and 2? Let's go back and look at 1 and 2 again. I love how Paul starts here. He says, for we know. Do you hear the confidence in that? For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And so Paul's going to draw a contrast now in his analogies. He says, if you think of life between the gardens, life in this fallen world is living in a tent, then when you think about Jesus coming back, we're going to get a house. We're going to get a heavenly dwelling. We're going to get a house, not a tent. We're going to get something that endures. It's a wonderful imagery. Do you think of your eternal existence? Do you think of where you're going to live eternally, not just in the interim, the intermediate state between your death and return of Christ, how do you picture your life after Jesus comes back? I was talking to our almost six-year-old granddaughter about this yesterday, and she's saying, well, there'll be clouds and people will float around. (laughs) I said, sweetheart, can Papa read something to you? 
It's much more glorious than clouds and harps. People floating around with wings on their back. The biblical teaching on our eternity is much more glorious. Let me just read to you from the end of the book, Revelation 21. It's the next to the last chapter in the Bible. Listen to this. John writes, by the Holy Spirit's introduction, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen, friends. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed Our eternity will be physical. Not floating on some cloud playing a harp with a halo over our head. It is much more glorious than that. That heaven and earth will merge. That's why it's called the new heaven and the new earth. They, they merge, you say those together. That God is going to come down like he came and walked with Adam and Eve, only better. Jesus is going to come down here and He's going to renew all things. He's going to banish sin. He's going to lift the curse. Oh, I long for that day. No more sin. No more curse. No more death. No more mourning, no more living in the presence of God. Revelation 22, 4 says, they will see His face. That, my friends, is the heaven of heavens. God is coming to live with us. He's coming to live with us. He's taking away sin and death. He's lifting the curse. say, well, Pastor Larry, that makes me homesick, but I, what's that going to be like? What will these... His first letter to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, I'll start in verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes from Isaiah, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what will my resurrected body look like? Well, there's a lot we don't know. But you know, the Bible does give us some pretty strong clues. One thing we know is that you will be you. You know what I mean by that? You'll be you. I mean, this myth of reincarnation where you're going to show up as somebody else or something else, that's a bunch of, of balderdash. <laughs> you're going to be you. But you'll be different. He, he says you'll be you. He talks about being clothed. It's not like somehow you become a different person, but it's like God puts immortality on you. He puts permanence on you. He puts a whole perfect sinless body on you. He clothes it. Paul makes up a word in 2 Corinthians 5 where he, he says we'll be overclothed, clothed over, super clothed. I don't know how you want to say it in English. We don't have a word for that in English. But he says you, we're going to have this eternity put on us. Immortality. We'll be clothed with immortality. So you're the same person, but you're changed. You're no longer sinful. You're no longer subject to sickness and, and disability and death. Bible says in a couple of different places too that we'll be like our resurrected Lord. John says that. He says, we know when we see him we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. Paul said something very similar. In Philippians chapter 3 he says, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so you ask the question, well, what do we know about the resurrected body of Christ? Well, if you think through those post-resurrection passages we have in the gospel accounts, what do we know? Well, he could be touched. Remember what he said to Thomas? Here, touch me, Thomas. Go ahead. He was touchable. He was physical. He ate, didn't he? He says, give me some fish. And he ate fish in the presence of his disciples so they knew he wasn't some sort of ghost. Jesus' resurrected body could eat and drink, be touched. And yet it was somehow different, wasn't it? We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Is that how you picture your eternity? <laughs> it's going to be a physical eternity, a bodily eternity. We're not going to be floating around like angels on, with wings on clouds playing harps. Heaven and earth will merge. And we will be what Adam and Eve were intended to be at the beginning. We'll be like princes and princesses, ruling and reigning this created universe under the auspices of the great king and for his pleasure. Isn't that a glorious thing to think about? So how does this impact us? We're, we're still here, aren't we? We're still here in this I call it the era between the gardens. The Garden of Eden's gone. The garden yet to be revealed. The eternal paradise has not yet come. And here we are sojourning, living as exiles in this era between the gardens. How does this impact us now? Let me give you two words. The first word is commitment. Did you notice that in verses 9 and 10? Whether we are at home or away, in other words, whether we're in this body or we're in spirit form in heaven, whether we're home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
Now, if you're looking for a life verse, this might be a good one to consider. We make it our aim to please him. When we continue our study in 2 Corinthians in the coming weeks, we'll eventually get to verse 15 of chapter 5. It says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That living under the smile of Christ and for the smile of Christ is what fuels us. In the morning, to pray, Lord, how can I please you today? Lord, show me how I can best serve you today. We make it our aim to please him. We don't have time to embellish on it this morning, but Paul says in verse 10 that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. That matters, friends. It matters how we live now. I'm not saying that what you do is what saves you. That's not the point. But what we do now, we will report to the king when we stand before him. We'll report to the judge when we stand before his bench. And I think as Christians, we should be highly motivated to say, oh, more than anything else, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Understanding what God has planned for us in eternity should move us toward commitment to live to please him. But the second word I have for you, the word commitment, the second word is courage. Paul uses that word twice in this passage, in verse 6 and verse 8. At the beginning of both, both verse 6 and verse 8, he talks about courage. What's courage? It's the willingness to say and to do the right thing no matter what the cost. In the greater context here is Paul's explaining why he didn't chuck the whole thing. Why he didn't just walk away from this whole stuff of living for Christ. I mean, you read the accounts of Paul, how much he suffered for the cause of Christ. He died for Christ. And yet even as he wrote his last letter, he didn't tell his son in the faith, go find an easier life. Don't follow me, son. Go find a more peaceful life. In Timothy 1.8, he said, Timothy, my son, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of Christ or of me as prisoner. But come suffer with me for the cause of the gospel. At the end of his life, he's still singing the same song. He's still saying from death row, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth every moment. Jesus is worth every pain I've ever experienced. Jesus Christ is worth every ounce of suffering I've undergone. Because he said, how did he begin this chapter? For we know. We know. We know this life is not all there is. If you're like Gehazi and all you can see is what's in front of you, you're going to panic in life. You're going to panic in life. You're going to see the suffering that comes with being faithful to Christ. You're saying, I don't think I can do that. I, don't, I think it's all going to turn out really bad. But if you look with the eyes of the faith higher and farther, then you see horses and chariots of fire. When you see eternity, you say, oh, there's a glorious future. God has promised me. He's prepared me for this. He's given me His Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that that's what awaits me. There's an eternity 
on the new heaven and the new earth, in a home, a house. He's prepared for me. I'm willing. I, I can. I choose to live for Christ. I choose to suffer for Christ. This life is not all there is. I read a powerful story recently that I'd heard before, but let me tell you this as we wrap things up here. In the mid-19th century, there was a Scotsman who felt called to go to the New Hebrides Islands, the South Sea Islands. And as he stood before some of the leaders in a church in Scotland, and he said, I feel called to go to these islands. One of the older men in the church said, but Mr. Peyton, you will be eaten by cannibals. Which was not just blowing smoke. That had actually happened to previous missionaries that had tried. He said, Mr. Peyton, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Let me read to you his response. Peyton said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. And there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether, eaten, whether I am eaten by cannibals or worms. And on the great day of the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. Amen? Doesn't matter if you're eaten by cannibals or worms. We're all going to get resurrected. And we'll be like our Lord. My Lord has prepared a glorious physical future for me. And for you, believer, seeing that, or to use Paul's words in 5.1, knowing that, makes all the difference. It fuels within us a Christ-honoring, spirit-fueled confidence and commitment. It says, I want to live for Christ. Whatever the cost. I want to live for Christ. Let me end with words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Sometimes we feel like there's so much we don't know, but many times when we don't understand something, we haven't put in the time to study your word. Forgive us. Give us a hunger, a commitment to, to see what you've wanted us to know through your written word, that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, your living word. And Lord, I pray for myself, however many laps you have left for me to run, that I might run well with my eyes fixed on your son Jesus. And Lord, for my friends here, some older than I, some younger than I, many younger than I, Lord, that they might also join me in running this race, Lord, no matter what the cost, knowing that you have a glorious future awaiting us and you've given us your Holy Spirit as a guarantee that that's exactly what will happen. We've approached you this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.